If you've uh, joined us through the songs there, welcome. It's good to have you with us. I should just say, uh, if you're wondering why as Christians we talk about topics like these, such as money, sexuality, things like that, often topics that in our world are considered very much private, hands-off, nobody can have a say on that, is basically because we believe that God does have a say, the one who made us, Uh, very much has a say in all of these things and he probes our hearts and he challenges us to think about them. But I was reading an article this past week uh, which asked the question, why are poor people more generous than rich people, uh, proportionately speaking? Because apparently this is what the, the research shows, that poorer people are more willing to be generous. And The answers from the community on this article, while somewhat varied, generally fell into kind of two camps. And you can probably guess which side people might identify with. Some said that it's because of their generosity that poor people stay poor. That they don't know that they have to be frugal in order to become rich. Uh, and, And it's true that there are other studies which show how rich people see themselves as smarter than others, uh, or more savvy than poor people. Now, of course, we've got to say that the opposite of frugality is by no means generosity. Uh, The opposite of frugality, I think, is carelessness. Uh, Generosity is the opposite of stinginess. So the argument kind of faults on itself. But others uh, in these comments said that it's because poor people know what it's like to struggle, that they care more about the plight of others Because they've been there. They know what it's like. And again, there are studies that show that with increasing wealth comes diminished empathy. That the richer we are, the less empathy we have towards others. The richer someone becomes, the more they feel like they deserve what they have and and others perhaps don't. Now, of course, it's not just the rich who fall into the trap of entitlement. That's a struggle for the poor as well. It's a struggle for all of us. And I think, uh, I have to say that, of course, we might be thinking in two camps here, but really, in the broad scope of the world, we all are the rich. And there are many, many people who are much poorer. But entitlement, we all struggle with. Selfishness, we all struggle with. Greed, we all struggle with. These are sicknesses of the heart, the Bible says, and and it's in each and every one of us. And so if you're here under the impression today that Christians are too often chasing money or that churches are too often caught in financial scandals, the sad reality is that it's true. We have to admit it. It's true. We, like everyone else, are greedy at heart. That's who we are. We are naturally selfish. We chase money. And so often we do it at the neglect of others in order to get that. And so here's the first part of this afternoon's talk. Greed and grievances. Greed and grievances. Just like greed causes grievances in the world at large, in every area of life. And in fact, you could say that it completely divides the world in two a lot of the time, whether it's uh, in, in classes, upper classes, lower classes, or whether it's through economic ideologies, Socialism, capitalism, 
It divides the world. It creates these grievances. So it causes grievances in the church. And I would confess two main grievances that the church is very much guilty of. The first is the greed of the big prosperity churches. It said that, uh, that rich people think about money and, and potentially even worry about money more than poor people do. Like the more that you have, the more you worry about it. And it's kind of the same for wealthy churches. The more sort of wealthy a church is, the more they just are talking about it and thinking about it and going on and on about it. And there are churches in our world whose key teaching is that God wants you to be rich, to be filthy rich. That if you have enough faith, He will make you rich beyond your wildest dreams. He will bless you with all sorts of material abundance. And on top of that, you will never get sick and you will always be healthy. And we call this the prosperity gospel. Uh, Gospel, if you don't know, means good news, message. Uh, We call it the prosperity gospel and we call it that because basically it is a different gospel to what we find in the Bible. I would even go so far as to say it is a fake gospel. It is a lie. The true gospel, according to the Bible, the gospel of Jesus, is all about humility and service and sacrifice and spiritual wealth, not material wealth. Now, ironically, these churches do encourage generosity. They urge that faith will result in giving Uh, which actually results in more getting. So the more you give, the more you're actually going to get back. But ultimately, it's so the church and its leaders become fantastically rich. Like billionaire rich. And it pains me to admit that there are preachers, there are pastors in our world who manipulate people into giving, even to the point of poverty, or even into some of the poorest countries these ministries happen so that they can buy mansions and fly around in private jets. And there's not really many words for it except to say it's disgusting. Because Jesus, in contrast, had no true home. He left his home in heaven and he never really took one up on earth except while he was growing up. And he only ever needed the few possessions required for his traveling ministry. God provided his needs as he went and he was more than happy to accept the hospitality of others. The Bible says about him, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus didn't, get rich off other people. In fact, he sought to make himself poor so that others could be rich. Although, once again, we're talking here about spiritual richness and wealth rather than material. The other main grievance against the church is when we make giving a law or an obligation or a demand when it becomes legalistic. A church in Florida was once reported to have sent a single mother a notice 
and churches are not, uh, it's, it's known that sometimes this has happened in churches. They sent her a notice saying that she owed $1,000 and it was calculated by a tithe of $50 per month, a minimum tithe, uh, plus two special offerings. And if she did not pay, then she would no longer be a member of the church. Christianity Today once reported that a preacher refused to do the funeral of a 93-year-old member because at some point she had stopped giving to the church. And when asked about it, his excuse was, well, membership has its privileges. And I am very sorry to say that such things have happened in the church, that Christians have been guilty of these things. And even in our own church, we haven't done that, I'll Not that I know of anyway, but even in our own church, we have been guilty about talking of giving as if it is a requirement or an obligation or a law. Perhaps there's a lot of people here sort of feeling like that's how they were brought up. But it's not a law. It's true that in the Old Testament, God required the people to tithe. Now, if you don't know what that means, that means to give 10%. But see, in the Old Testament, the tithe was effectively their taxation system because they lived in what we call a theocracy. That is a a government that is governed by God through appointed people. And it wasn't just 10%, by the way. If you include things like the temple tax and the land Sabbath tax and the requirement to leave profits for the poor, all of it amounted to at least around about 24% that the people were required to give. But giving in the truer sense of the word, uh, they, they used to call it free will offerings or giving willingly, they were made to God on top of the tithe. And in many ways it's the same for Christians today. They pay taxes to the government and they make free will gifts to the church as a separate offering. And so the New Testament never mentions tithing. It never demands offerings of individuals. It never makes giving a rule. But what it does do is it does require generosity from those who have received the grace of God. And this brings me to the second point this afternoon, which is gratitude and grace. Christian giving is never about law. It is about gratitude. Gratitude for what God has given us. See, we believe that God provides us with absolutely everything. Daily bread, clothing, homes, relationships, everything. Now, sure, we we work for money and Our money is what buys a lot of these things, but God provides us with work. And he provides us with minds and bodies in order to do that work. And so we give out of thankfulness to the one who gives us everything that we have. Every single thing. Even the creation around us. Beautiful creation is is a gift to enjoy and appreciate. But even more than that, we give out of thankfulness for redemption. Because we believe that Jesus was and is God's greatest gift. 
given to forgive us, given to save us. As we read before, he became poor, uh, even to the point of dying, so that we could become rich. That is, we could have life and life forever. And so we give because of God's grace. Because of his grace, his, his undeserved love. And, and the very nature of the word means that he's not obligated to give us that love or any of the gifts that he gives. And so we don't give out of obligation either. We give because we are overjoyed with salvation. And so with this in mind, the Apostle Paul gives us, I think, the best rule of thumb, which we use as Christians. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul's almost saying, God doesn't want your gifts if they are reluctant or you don't really want to give them. He doesn't want your gifts if they're just because the guy up the front in a church service tells you to give it or your parents tell you to give it or whatever it may be in your circumstances. God loves a cheerful giver. And so there's three implications that come out of this reality. One is that we do not expect anybody to give. We do not ask anybody to give if they do not know the grace of God and respond in gratitude. The church that has Jesus at its center should never seek gifts or offerings without gratitude and grace. Now, I'm not saying that people can't give to certain causes and things like that. But there is never an expectation without gratitude and grace. Secondly, for those who do believe in Jesus, we aren't just called to give 10% or even 25%. The Bible actually calls us to give 100%. 100. Because we believe that Jesus has given us everything. He's ransomed us. This is the, the language the Bible uses. He's redeemed us completely. So gratitude that truly understands what that grace looks like. We'll give everything back. Everything. Now that doesn't mean that as Christians we put all our money in the offering bags. Uh, Nobody here does that. Nobody can do that. But it means that our whole lives are lived for Him. To worship Him. To glorify Him. And to witness Him. He is our identity. He is our purpose. He is our eternity. He is our everything. And so this brings me to the third implication is that grace received leads to grace given. So as I've said, giving to the church should only ever be about gratitude. It's not because we have to and it's not because we want something in return. It's not a bargain. It's not a deal that's struck. And so it's the same with giving to others. It's an act of grace. It's a gift, like the pure definition of of the word gift, without any expectation of return. With the grace that God shares with us, we are to share it with others. 
And so if you walk through the doors of a church, any church, it should be more likely that somebody comes up to you and hands you a 50 than that they ask for you to give a 50. Now, that's never going to happen in case you're wondering, you want to start going to all the different churches and getting 50 bucks. But it should be more likely that that happens. That someone says, here you go, you, you, can, you could do with this. Then that they say, here's the collection plate. Cough it up. See, Jesus, he was the man, coming back to this, uh, what we considered right at the beginning, this, this concept of empathy. Jesus was the man of perfect empathy. Because he was the perfect son of God. And so he could have compassion on people like no one else could. He knew their their deepest struggles, including those in poverty and all types of poverty. He became a human being and one of the poorest so that he could help all human beings. And he calls us to do the same. To understand the plight of others or to do our very best to understand to tap into their struggles and to offer the relief of Jesus to give time and energy and sometimes money to aid people in finding true satisfaction joy and hope and so the idea is that if wealth diminishes our empathy As Christians, if wealth diminishes our empathy or our compassion towards others, Jesus calls us to give it away, to get rid of it. And if wealth diminishes our gratitude or our trust in him, he calls us to give it away in order to change up our priorities. If wealth diminishes, or sorry, if wealth makes us greedy for more, and more, and more, and more, Jesus calls us to give it away. That's what he says about money. As it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, whoever loves money, and the Bible is always about you know the love of money, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And this too is meaningless. Or as the Apostle Paul says, One of the greatest, I think, warnings about money says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It circles back to the grievances and the griefs. I think that's powerful imagery right there if you're wondering what Paul's getting at. It's like picture somebody maybe on a battlefield just walking into a stake or a spear that's there on the ground. They've pierced themselves with many griefs. That's what the love of money does to us. It's true that the church suffers greed and that Christians struggle with the love of money. We all do. But it's also true that we are learning to love God and others more 
Growing in gratitude, growing in grace, and growing in generosity. And the challenge is there for all of us. Whether you're here as a believer or somebody who's, who's come to explore this topic, maybe who doesn't believe, the challenge is there for all of us. Jesus is like the epitome of what any human being should live like. So why are you up for it? Gratitude, grace, generosity. Perhaps I can just uh, pray with you to sort of wrap this up and, and just ask that God will help us to do this. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are our great provider. You have given us everything. You make us, you provide for us, you redeem us. And we thank you that you've done it even through the greatest